Welcome back to the podcast. My guest this week is Jaime Blasco. Jaime is at AT&T Cybersecurity. He heads up Alien Labs over there running the threat intel practice uh, for AT&T Cybersecurity. Welcome to the show, Jaime. How are you? Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. You are currently in lockdown in San Francisco, um, like all of us, trying to push through and make the most of things. I uh, invited you to the podcast to kind of examine your career a little bit. I'm spending a lot of time recently looking at the contributions of uh, quote-unquote non-Americans to cybersecurity. And you came to mind as a, a guy from Europe, came through the ranks in Madrid, and really, you know, is a success story in cybersecurity. So I wanted to go all the way back to your beginnings. Was it in high school when you started to realize that this technical computer thing was interesting and perhaps something that could be a career? Yeah, pretty much at that point. I think the, the first time that I that I had uh, contact with computers was uh, early 90s I was probably 10 11 maybe and my dad brought a computer home and you know that's how pretty much how I started like at the beginning at the beginning it was mainly I was playing games like I still remember Prince of Persia Maniac Mansion Monkey Island and then one day I was kind of like I really want to understand how this works like how can I actually make this myself. That's uh, pretty much how it started. And what was the scene like in Madrid at the time? Uh, was there an active computer clubs, active hacker scene, active maker scene? I mean, how did you get your feet wet just playing around with computers at, on a more serious level? And then this interest in, in security, hacking, breaking things? Yeah. So at, at, you know, at the beginning, it was kind of, um, I didn't have an internet connection and, and I was maybe 12 years old when when i really tried to got serious into this i started learning the basics of an operating system some basic programming and i remember my my cousin actually had started uh, computer science uh, in college and and he gave me some advice he gave me some books and some resources besides that it was mainly what i had access in the local library and being in a small town in spain at that time uh, it wasn't you know easy to, to get access to, to those resources. I remember going to my father's office, internet cafes, and then it started to download papers, to download, you know, RFCs, to download anything that I could access to, and then bring it home and start, uh, you know, reading that. But I, everything really changed when I finally got an, an internet connection, right? A new world really opened to me and, you know, access to news group, mailing list, a lot of IRC uh, back, in the, back, back in the days. And at that time in Spain, the, there were a lot of groups, uh, you know, some of them became really famous, like 29A. Uh, we had... Give me some examples. Give me some examples of what those groups were at the time and what they were doing. Give the folks a feel of like your early entrant and, you know, the things that were exciting to you. Absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, at the beginning, I remember, uh, you know, meeting some people in RRC, trying to, you know, get my feet wet and, and learning the basis. And then, you know, I started uh, reading the publications from this, uh, from this group. Like we had 29A, that was one of the first Spanish group, mainly focusing in virus. It was awesome, everything that they were doing. You know, we had Saqueadores, they have a, an online magazine that was amazing, similar to like FRAG, but in, in, in Spain. Uh, and Ispahak, that is also one of the other big, uh, you know, hacking groups that, that came out of Spain. So at that point, I wasn't that involved because I was an earlier generation, but I was really into what these guys were doing. And one day I really wanna, wanted to become something similar to what they were doing. Who were these guys? Are there, are there some names that we would recognize? Who were like your early influences in the Spanish uh, security scene? Yeah, a lot of people, you know, came 
came out and worked, you know, they are now working in the cybersecurity industry, right? I remember Fermin Serna that, that you are probably, you know, familiar with. So at Citrix, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's one of the big names. You know, he was involved in the community. Ruben Santa Marta that is in, in IOActive. Ero Carrera that is now in Google. His resources on, you know, some of the libraries that he created and, and some of the work that he did in, in fuzzing and, and, you know, reverse engineering was amazing to me at the time. Right, and then, of course, we can't forget the virus total guys down in Malaga uh, that was doing a lot of the work around uh, anti-malware scanners, scanning engines, and really pushing the envelope forward there. There was a lot of really interesting activity out of Spain from those guys as well. Yeah, and, and in terms of uh, companies, you know, at that time you had VirusTotal, Ispasek, as you mentioned, uh, Panda Security was also, uh, you know, created in the in the early '90s. S twenty one Sec that was, you know, as a small uh, company in Spain that was doing services. A lot of these people actually, you know, came out of that company, and now some of them are creating creating their own startups. You know, the new generation of startups out of Spain in the last few years, most of them came from those companies. You know, so I, I don't know if you are familiar with uh, Blue Leaf, uh, with Countercraft. Those are two companies where the founders were actually, you know, part of some of these communities, but also started in, in these companies that I mentioned. Right. I, and I bring up these things and I ask these obscure random questions because specifically, and I mentioned it earlier, was I read the Cult of the Dead Cow book. And quite rightly, a lot of those guys featured in the book and shout out to Joseph Mann and the guys uh, who participated in that project made significant contributions to the cybersecurity industry. But in a general sense... There's a lot of great, fantastic innovation, security research, uh, high quality work that came out of some of these smaller groups in Europe, Australia, parts of China, parts of Asia that doesn't get recognized. And I think it's important for you guys to step forward and tell those stories. At what stage did it stop being just a fun, really little hobby? And then it became the security thing is really fascinating and interesting. And this could be a career. This is something I can, this could be a business for me. So early on when, when I went to college, probably the first year I started helping some of my friends that I met through you know these communities they had started a, a company so I was doing some consulting with them and, and working with some customers and you know it became obvious to me that you know I could do a career out of what I was really happy with that was you know basically learning and, and breaking things right and, you know, early in my career, I was really focused on pen testing and the offensive side of things. And, you know, later on, I really changed that completely and, and focused on, on the defensive side. But at the very beginning, it was oh, wait, about... Wait, wait, wait. Let's, let's, let's go back to this early on in your career where the pen testing and it, the web app stuff and the, the, the offensive side of things became interesting because I think that's always the sexiest way in. It's kind of like, oh my gosh, this power that I have that comes with being a hacker, that's the attraction, right? That was the attraction for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, before that, we, we were kind of doing that at home. You know, now we had a customer that, you know, first of all, we didn't, we didn't have to worry about uh, doing something illegal. But, you know, more importantly, we were actually helping a, a customer and a company to get better and, and actually get paid for it. So it was a win-win situation for me. And you focused a lot on, on, on the web app stuff, like I mentioned, early in your career doing that pen testing. Paint a picture of the scene at the time. What did that pen test world look like? Yeah, it was mean 2000s. You know, there were a few tools out there, but most of this stuff, you had to build it yourself. And that was also you know, part of what pushed me to like start writing my own tools and, and doing my, my own research. Uh, I mean, to be fair with you, back in the back in the days, like, 
you know, it was super easy, right? Everything was hackable. Every single engagement that we had was successful. You know, it- Now, when you say single engagement, you're talking about a pen test exercise or a red team exercise where your your a product is put in front of you and the comp and and as a researcher as or as a consultant on a pen test exercise, everything was crackable. Everything was easy to compromise. Yeah, and you know, not not easy, but and the, at the end, you you were able to 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 get it done, right? And and I'm. I, I was mainly doing, you know, white box, black box testing, some source code analysis, and then later on, actually, we I started my own company and and I started doing consulting uh, with with me and another friend. Uh, we grew that team a little bit, and then we we tried to to come up with a couple of uh, products that we tried to bring to market in Spain. As you can imagine, that wasn't uh, that successful. Uh, how did you get to the United States? And talk a little bit about the importance of, not the importance, but the, like some of the privilege that comes with security researchers and folks who have access to jobs and opportunities here in the United States versus uh, growing up. And even for, even for Europeans, there's a little bit of a privilege, but even in other parts of the world where there's privilege, wouldn't exist. Talk a little bit about the difference between your, you know, your early foray into building a business in Europe, migrating to the US and really scaling that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, to talk about that transition, I, I really need to talk about the transition between, you know, when I had my own company and then when I met Julio Casal and, and the founders at Alienbolt. And, you know, at some point we were kind of like, you know, our company, it's it's kind of working, but I, I'm not sure if we are going to be able to grow this uh, to the level that we want. And I was lucky enough to meet uh, Julio Casal, that was the founder of Alienball. They were just starting. This was 2007, uh, more or less. And Julio, uh, you know, I, I had lunch with him and he really convinced me that, you know, working on the defensive side of things will make a much bigger impact. And actually, I still remember that during that lunch, uh, he told me, you know, one day we're going to be in the U.S. and we're, you know, we, we are going to be one of the most important players in the cybersecurity industry. And, you know, and at some point I was like, who is this guy? Why is he telling me this? He's trying to just, you know, convince me to, to join the company. But, you know, after a while, it became clear that, you know, I made the, the right choice to join them. And But you make an interesting point. Like, you make an interesting point there where, that conversation was important enough for you that you remember it where he says defense offers a bigger impact. Why did that have to resonate with you? Because, And I think this is important because there's a, a lot of guys in this mindset where unless you're hacking things and unless you're elite and breaking things, you're not really, you know, you're not really doing hacking and research. And there's that mindset. There's a lot of fun interesting innovation that can happen on the defensive side. Why did you remember that conversation and why was the impact more important to you? Yeah, after after I had lunch with him, I remember coming back home and starting thinking like, you know, what 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 I really want to do with my life. Should I, you know, go back to college? Should I, you know, join uh, these guys that have crazy ideas? And then I really thought about that you know, defensive side of things. And, and as I mentioned before, based on my experience, I truly believe that attackers had an overwhelming advantage over defenders. And since almost everything at that time was, uh, you know, you go hack. And, and I said, you know what, maybe this is really the future and, and, and it's where we really can help, you know, customers to, to overcome these issues, especially coming from, from the offensive side. I, I, I had an understanding of, of some of the things we should do uh, to help customers. And Alien Vault was a threat intelligence player that became uh, evolved into a really 
powerful SIEM tool that that became very popular and very useful. Talk a little bit about like the early days of building that from scratch, watching the industry evolve the nation state attacks and some of the higher profile attacks take center stage. Breaches start to become more and more like almost like an everyday occurrence. That transition from, like you mentioned, these guys having this crazy idea to we are now like a really secure, important player in this industry. What was that transition? What was that adventure like? Yeah, I mean, it, it was fascinating. I, I mean, I remember when, you know, when I first joined them, I, I believe there were less than 10 people. And when we sold to AT&T last year, we were probably, you know, I think less than 500 something like you know 300 or 400 people so i have seen the company really become uh you know a really really small startup in spain all the way to you know being part of a huge enterprise now in the us i think one of the right decisions that may they they made julio and the team early on was focusing on open source so before alien bolt what they built was an open source project that people around the world were using. So once we created AlienBot, we already had tons of customers that were using the open source version. And that really, really helped us when we came to the US. Because remember, being a small startup in Spain and trying to sell in the US, it is recipe for disaster, right? Uh, especially in cybersecurity, customers really need to trust you. And being a small startup in Spain is actually not uh, ideal for them. So thanks to that open source uh, base that we had, uh, it's how we were able to overcome uh, you know, that barrier between Spain and the US. You already had an active community that was actively using the tool and it was easy to transition that here. Tell me, t- talk to me about the language barrier. Is that a real issue? It is. And, and you know, obviously working in, in, in this, uh, er, you know, in this um, world early on, I, I mean, I was able to read, I, will, I was able to write, you know, but speaking and having day-to-day conversations, at that point, I wasn't that comfortable. But I mean, once I moved to the US, that, that kind of like got better and better. And, and you know, now I feel, um, you know, comfortable at that time it was really a barrier because we had to work with customers in the US and and it was hard to find people in in Spain that will were able to do it and we had amazing engineers but uh, you know maybe some of them at, at that point were not able to to have conversation in English and and yes it was a barrier but you know we we overcome that and and I think it was uh, uh, in the end that that can be solved it wasn't uh, one of the big problems that we have or one of the big barriers that we had to overcome. But it is a legit issue for a lot of uh, non-English speaking countries breaking into this market, right? Not only not only with your own documentation, but, you know, supporting, uh, providing support. And this is why, again, the open source route must also be helpful where you drive a lot of your support into the community. Yes. And I mean, the, the, other, the other area where we were successful was establishing relationships early on with partners in different countries. Because, I mean, we were talking about the U.S., but at that point, I remember we had customers in over, you know, 50, 60 countries. Uh, so it wasn't just English, but, you know, we have customers in France, in Germany, in all over Asia, in South America. So we, we had to have those capabilities uh, with, you know, multiple languages. So we really rely on establishing partnerships with local companies 
that could help us with, uh, with with those issues. And one of the fun things that you guys did, and I always give credit to Alien Vault for this. Um, I don't know if you realized how important it was at the time. Alien Vault had, and, and, and this probably came from the top with you as the head of the lab team there, was this approach to partnering with quote-unquote competitors on research. Uh, there was no such thing as competition when it came to the technical nerding out on the technical bits of security research. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and I'm glad that, that you pointed out that. I think Alien Ball as a company, not, not just on the research side of things, but coming from the open source world, we try to use that approach in every part of the company, right? So when it came to threat intelligence and threat research, again, one of the barriers we had is at the beginning, no one knows who you are. And how can you get out there and talk about a particular threat? You may have 10 readers. So how can you amplify that? And as you pointed out, uh, you know, working with other companies, even if they were our, our competitors, you know, was something that maybe we didn't do completely on purpose. But once we started doing it, we realized that it was actually a powerful tool. Uh, for me, it was more about uh, working with friends and, you know, putting resources and efforts together because uh, in the end, we're all fighting the, the same fight, right? We are fighting against uh, the, the bad guys, uh, against the same threat actors. So if we can actually uh, become allies, we are going to be more powerful than just, you know, trying co to compete with each other. You and I first crossed paths when, uh, in the threat intel space. You were doing uh, public presentations on a lot of your uh, threat intel tracking of uh, high-end malware. Uh, so I got to ask you, Help me understand, what on earth is threat intelligence? It's kind of this catch-all term that everyone uses in different ways. In your mind, as a nerd in this, in this space, what is threat intelligence? For me, it's uh, you know knowledge that you can collect from from threat actors uh, and anything from techniques, tools, uh, procedures, uh, you know, including malware infrastructure, anything that you can tell from a threat actor that can be used to uh, detect, prevent, or inform your your customers. It can be something technical, like you know what we call tactical threat intelligence. Uh, can be signatures, can be indicators of compromise, but it can also be something. Can you break those down, if you don't mind? Can you break down those areas exactly what they mean? Yeah, absolutely. So tactical threat intelligence. Uh, you know, I mentioned signatures, so Jara signatures, IDS signatures that you can deploy and detect. You know, particular pieces of malware or particular network yeah, protocols that that threat actors are using. Indicators of compromise is something more uh, specific, like IP addresses, domains, uh, SSL certificates uh, that you know these threat actors are using. But then the you know if you move away from that tactical perspective, you can talk about a, strat a strategic threat intelligence that is more you know who these guys are, uh, who do they who do they work for, which country are they based on, uh, which objectives do, do they have. What type of companies they are after, uh, you know, industries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That stuff becomes relevant. Um, the the attribution side of things. Who are these attackers? What are the profile of the attackers? What are the batches of potential victims they go after? That stuff becomes interesting and relevant to uh, a subset of companies that are high end and and play in the nation state space. Or that stuff is relevant to every CISO out there. So the the strategic threat intelligence is usually more useful, you know, if the security teams are, are more sophisticated. So once you move up on the enterprise, uh, you know, that 
threat intelligence is usually more consumable by, by those type of companies. But when you talk about tactical threat intelligence, like which IP addresses, which domains should I detect or block, that can be used uh, you know, pretty much in any type of, cost, uh, of, of company out there. Uh, one of the problems we had with that at the at the beginning of the industry is like only big enterprises really had the capabilities to put that into uh, you know in their detection uh, tools. But actually, something that that we did in Alienball because most of our customers were actually small and medium-sized businesses was how can we approach threat intelligence so my customers understand what that means? And you know, we put together some. Uh, some things, I don't know if, if you remember OTX, the open threat exchange that, that we put together. So that's, that's basically what, what, uh, the approach that we took is how can we crowdsource threat in, a, a threat intelligence platform that we are not going to sell? It's for free. You can go otx.alienball.com, create an account and start getting indicators of compromise for, for free that researchers, other companies and competitors around the world are putting together in the platform. Uh, we don't charge for that, and the reason be, because we uh, the reason why we wanted to do that is because we wanted to help those medium and small size customers that didn't have the knowledge or the the money to actually go go out there and and buy those those expensive expensive tools that the big guys were using. So I talk a lot on this podcast about the SMB tax. Uh, small, medium-sized businesses have largely become the forgotten man in cybersecurity in general, not only in threat intelligence. For all intents and purposes, the most modern small business will outsource security to G Suite, uh, Microsoft, and just rely on those guys to provide email security, anti-spam, anti-phishing, threat intelligence. You're saying there's still a subset of small businesses out there that rely on this OTX and the open source free sharing of information to really survive because affording this threat intelligence is also another thing. A lot of these threat intel private reports you're talking about in IOCs, these things are incredibly expensive. They're obviously expensive because they're a lot of work and they're a lot of high quality work. Help me understand what is the, if you found this SMB tax in place and what were the struggles in trying to get SMBs to understand the importance of threat intel in their places? You know, the struggle usually when I, I will talk to one of these customers was they didn't know where Sticks was. They didn't know what Yara was. Uh, so they, they didn't understand. They still don't. Yeah, they still don't. Done. And and that's what you need to know if you wanted to buy one of those products that I mentioned. So our approach was how can we do this in a way that is easily consumable, out of the box, and you know it works. You don't have to spend time. You don't need to understand what's actually going on under the hood uh, uh, to get some advantage for it. And actually, not only that, but we created this network where these customers will, will also or users will also share information back. With the, with the networks, so other people could take advantage of that as well. You mentioned early in the conversation, in your pen test days, it wasn't easy, but in, in most cases, a compromise was successful. Fast forward to 2020, modern computing systems have been built with all kinds of anti-exploit mitigations and things have uh, gotten better. However, every time you open uh, TechCrunch, there's always a big, massive bridge. Help me understand what's going on. Are we really getting better at security or are we just uh, resigned to the fact that everything is compromised and we'll continue to have massive breaches on a almost daily basis? Good question. I, I mean, I think we have made a lot of progress, right? And, you know, as an industry, the problem is, you know, some of the problems that we have actually fixed 
may not have been the mo most important ones. And, you know, if you look at the last... Give me some examples, because I, I, I actually agree with you. But when you talk about folk, uh, spending a lot of resources fixing problems that might not be the most more important ones, can you provide some examples of places where you see us being really, really slow to push innovation? Yeah, absolutely. So one example is uh, phishing, right? And, and, you know, you mentioned, you know, Microsoft and other vendors have spent a huge amount of resources on, you know, adding mitigations, fixing vulnerabilities, uh, preventing new vulnerabilities to actually being actors to actually exploit those vulnerabilities. And, you know, at the very beginning, we had actors using phishing, right, in the 90s. Then Microsoft, uh, you know, then, you know, actors started finding and exploiting vulnerabilities uh, to gain access to systems. Uh, Microsoft and others got better fixed you know, a, a lot of that. And now today we see those threat actors coming back to things like phishing and macros because actually we made all that underlying uh, operating systems and, and software uh, more secure. But then the threat actors keep exploiting, uh, uh, you know, phishing or social engineering, things that, you know, are harder to fix from technology and may require a completely different approach. I, I interrupted you actually attempting to answer the question about whether we've gotten, uh, why have we gotten so much better, but we are still so much worse off? The, the, the other thing is, I mean, technology is moving at, at a, a such a speed that is, it's, it's crazy, right? It, it's hard to keep up with, you know, new technologies that are coming out, new approaches. Uh, you know, we had... Uh, the transition from uh, data centers to cloud. Now we are having the transitions to, you know, from virtualization to containers. And this has been in like, you know, less than a decade. And, you know, I don't think that cybersecurity has really catch up with that. And I see customers trying to deploy the same vendors and the same type of approaches in the cloud that they were using on on-premise environments. And, and when you go to the cloud, you have to have a completely different uh, mindset. So uh, I think that the speed of uh, moving to new technologies is, is one of the, of the you know, contributors to this, this issue. And you know what? COVID and the new realities of 2020 with mobile workforces and this forced digital transformation among enterprises only exacerbates this. It, it will be really fascinating to see how this dramatic modernization uh, of the enterprise, even down the stack SMBs, even smaller, tiny businesses being forced to uh, transform and go digital brings an assortment of risks that I don't think we're prepared for. Yeah, com completely agree. And, you know, the, the good news is that transformation, if you do it properly, there, there are so many advantages. If, if you manage that, that transition properly, uh, you will have a more secure infrastructure and architecture. The cloud and, you know, SaaS uh, offers, uh, uh, you know, more building blocks out of the box that you can use to set up you know, these this, this security controls. You used to uh, have to buy like 10, 15 different products in the past to really have those capabilities in your prime environment. Now, when you move to, to, to the new paradigm, to this part, you know, cloud, or SaaS beta approach, you have that out of, out of the box most of the times. I agree. It's, it'll be interesting to see uh, how this crisis changes things and how security programs 
uh, are forced to adjust. It'll be, just be fascinating to watch. And I think the, the truth is nobody knows what anything brings. So there's no sense trying to speculate about what things look like. But what I want to finish with is what excites you today? What are you working on now? What fascinates you? Or, or have you become one of those top line managers approving expense reports and attending meetings all day and not doing research anymore? You know, I have become one of those, but I still, you know, work with my team and, and, and do research with them and try to coach them and and sometimes I even find time myself to like have my own projects and you know one of the things I have been working in the last few years is really learning more about machine learning I I do believe that the intersection between machine learning and cybersecurity is it's going to play a huge role in in the future and even more than today right because it's already it's already playing a, a huge role but I believe machine learning is really a force multiplier for defenders. And many solutions today use machine learning successfully. You use it all the time, right? Spam phishing detection, malware classification, fraud detection. But I think that's just the beginning and we are going to see many more applications, uh, not just in the defensive side, but also on the offensive side. And I think, you know, spending more time I- I- I there, it's, it's going to be uh, an important piece if we want to be successful moving forward. Talk a little bit, just as close, you mentioned uh, doing some mentorship and doing some guidance for, for your team. How does someone in your position, a guy who has transitioned from the trenches of being a practitioner and a researcher up into management and you kind of, you get lost. How do you how do you keep your your creative juices flowing for the research, find the time and find the resources? Help other managers like yourself understand what are the most important things you can do to get junior members of your team and just pass on some of this mentorship and apprenticeship to your teams. Yes, well, one of the things that I have found very you know, successful is booking meetings with myself because one of the problems you have as a, a, being a manager is that your, your calendar is full every single day. And, and as you mentioned, you may not have enough time to dedicate to doing research or doing things that you want to do. Uh, so one of the things I do is I book a meeting with myself every day or maybe a couple of times per week. And that's the time that I always, you know, use to do to do this research. Uh, in terms of, um, you know, coaching, I mean, it's really important for your team to understand that, uh, you know, you are their partner, you can help them overcome obstacles and everything you do have to be uh, around how can you eliminate barriers for them and not create new ones, right? Because uh, I, I wish, uh, you know, I had some of that when, when I, I really started because uh, I had some mentors uh, later on, but at the very beginning, I don't feel like I had, you know, a good mentor. And that's, I believe that's super important when you are starting in this, uh, in this industry. It really is. And I think the absence of physical security conferences and the place for you to go meet people physically, smile and share a beer with someone, get let into trusted groups and get, uh, you know how it is. A lot of this, a lot of these relationships and a lot of this mentorship comes from physical relationships. I also worry about our move to virtual world and move to conferences really affect those trusted relationships, really affect the ability of youngsters and newcomers to break into our industry but you know that's a conversation for another time um hi mate thank you very much for coming on the podcast appreciate the time uh you and i can talk for another hour so please the invitation is out come back at any time thank you ryan